King of the cosmos, he came incarnate, human. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. Every bit the king of the cosmos as he set aside his power and glory so that he could die the death that we deserved on our behalf. This is what we heard last week as Craig Roberts uh, took us through the events leading up to the crucifixion. And with his words, king of the cosmos, still echoing in my ears, I had a long conversation with someone who'd just been to see Brian Cox. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's an English physicist who presents shows and lectures about the cosmos. He speaks about the Hubble Deep Field image, which was a picture taken by the Hubble telescope of a patch of nothing sky, just blank, dark space. If you were to hold up a five-cent piece, that's all I have in my wallet at any given time, up to the sky about that far from your eye, that would be about the scope of the picture taken. And what they found was not nothing, but at least 10,000 points of light. Here's that picture. And each of these points of light, virtually every one of them is a galaxy. Each galaxy, all 10,000 of them, would have an average of about 100,000 million stars like our sun. The number of stars in the observable universe is around 30,000 million, 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 contained in about 350 billion galaxies. And yet, they're not even randomly distributed. When they observe them, they can observe structure to this vast, vast universe. The numbers just sound made up to me, like a, like a gazillion, zillion, billion, trillion, zillion. And when I try and think about it and wrap my head around it, I actually just mind blown a little bit. And when asked in an interview about how these discoveries impact on his notion of a creator, this is what he says. One of the reasons I wanted to meet you is because I respect you enormously. I respect what you've done and the depth, breadth of knowledge that you have and the way that you've conveyed it is awesome. But I know that as a man of science that you are I sort of famously atheistic, is that right? Well, no, no, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, I reject the label because I think that it's divisive. Mm. And uh, so I genuinely think that science does not rule out the existence of a creator by by definition because we don't know how the universe began full stop mm. that's it we don't know right we we have a, a theory of what might have happened before the big bang a theory called inflation which says that the universe was still around but doing something else but we're still left with the question how did that start how did the universe have a beginning and if so how did it begin the answer is we don't know full stop Science can observe and discover the world, but when it comes to explaining creation, he says, we don't know, full stop. But we can know, and we do know, because Jesus, the king of the cosmos, made his dwelling amongst us. He is God unveiled, making the creator known to us in historical reality. He is God 
standing before us in kind and gracious revelation. And it's recorded in John's Gospel. For surely a God of this vast universe can only be knowable if he chooses to reveal himself to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. For three years, Jesus' disciples had observed his life, his teaching, his miracles. They'd watched him die and be buried. They were left filled with grief and scared. But in John 20, we read about an empty tomb and the appearances of a risen Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus speaks of victory. It speaks of power. God who created this vast universe who spoke each of those billions and billions of stars into space, who breathed life into all beings, has brought life from death. Jesus, scarred but alive, appears first to Mary and then to his disciples and then to Thomas. And we read that Thomas, standing before him, can only confess, my Lord and my God, mind blown. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no basis for our Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no basis for eternal hope. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no reason to believe that Jesus is God. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. This is one of the bits of the Bible that we can't park. The resurrection of Jesus was the decisive event that inspired the faith of the disciples. It transformed them from a fearful and grief-filled group to the founders of our early church. It is the pivotal, determining, focal point in history for all of humanity, for all of time. It's like the big bang of the Christian faith. Now, I'm intentionally using grandiose statements here because that's how massive this is. And you can ask my family, I'm known for exaggeration, but I'm at no risk of overstating this. The resurrection is so huge that I've been dreaming of reasons not to preach on it tonight because my mouth can't quite form words around it. And in lots of ways, I don't want to make it sound explainable or containable. The beauty of it and the mystery of it, the eternal hope it brings, it does just leave you speechless. Well, this won't be the world's shortest sermon. Thankfully, John and I witnessed to the resurrection records what he saw for us, and that's where we'll focus tonight on these stories. And we'll glean what we can, though there's much more to be said than what will be said tonight. Chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. John records two resurrection appearances, and they occur one week apart. The first one is to the group of disciples. Well, it's only ten of them, because we know that Judas isn't there, and as we read, Thomas isn't there either. 
And the second story is almost the same as the first, but this time Thomas is there. John doesn't just record these stories, though he was indeed an eyewitness, as I've said. But he's carefully arranged his words so that we can understand the significance of each story. So not just what happened, but what it means. And so let's look carefully at the first one. 2019 to 21. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It was dark, and the disciples were scared. Jesus is dead, his body is missing, and the Jewish authorities are quite possibly now on the hunt for his followers as well. So the doors are locked for good reason, and yet into this room, Jesus appears. They can see the scars on his hands and his feet. They can see his pierced side. There's no doubt that this is the same human body that they'd seen crucified only on Friday. And yet Sunday, having seen him buried, having seen the cloths lying folded in the empty tomb, here stands before them the living Jesus. It's a miracle. He has passed through the locked doors just as his body had passed through the cloths, just as his body had passed through deaths, through death itself, and he stands there and his wounds are like his credentials. It's definitely me, he's saying. And it's a body. They can see it, they can touch it. And later we read in chapter 21, that he even eats with them, and, yes, it, and yet it passes through the locked door. The resurrected body is a divine mystery, and they're unable to explain it. But they're certain that before them is the risen, alive Jesus, and their grief turns to joy. Only a couple of weeks ago, when we were looking at chapter 16, we read the night before he died... Jesus had forewarned his disciples about this very experience, saying, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Having moved from grief and fear to joy, perhaps this is why Jesus greets them with peace. Peace be with you, he says, as he enters the room. And in one sense, I think he is speaking about immediate peace. Jesus was dead and now he's alive. Peace. On the other hand, peace was just a conventional greeting amongst first century Jews. It still is today. If you've been to Israel, like I've been to Israel, you will have experienced that greeting every time you've walked into a shop or a restaurant. Shalom, they say. So is this just Jesus walking into the room like, hi guys, I'm back. No. John records the greeting of peace three times in verse 19, 21, and then further down in 26. And so we need to dig a little deeper. This is layered peace, deep peace, far beyond immediate or peace in this lifetime. 
This is lasting, eternal peace. It's the peace he'd promised them when he spoke to them in the upper room the night before he died. 1427. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. 1633. I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The disciples did go on to have trouble. Almost all of them were killed for their faith and for sharing the gospel message. So peace in this lifetime was an important and a gracious gift from God. But more than that, because Jesus is risen, death is defeated. He has overcome the world and their hope goes beyond this lifetime and is certain for eternity. This is the peace of a reconciled people to God, given new life. So how did this happen? Well, as Stu said, we have gone from the lead-up to the crucifixion to the risen Jesus, and there is an important part in the middle that we haven't skipped, but that we spoke about on Good Friday. Jesus was crucified. He was killed on a cross. If you know the Apostles' Creed, you'll know that this is something that we really emphasise in the Creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended to the dead. Jesus was seriously, seriously dead. And when I preached on this on Good Friday, I really emphasised that final cry of Jesus before he gives up his life, where he says, it is finished. He was, as John the Baptist had declared in chapter 1, verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His death on the cross is the finished work of the sacrifice lamb. His spilled blood washes clean the sins of the world. And now he comes in victory, risen, alive. So Jesus' greeting of peace is like the perfect counterpoint to the finished work on the cross. It is finished. Peace be with you. This is the peace of reconciliation, the peace of sins forgiven, the peace of eternal life with the Father made possible through the life of Jesus. And with this announcement of full peace, in verse 21, he carries on. He breathes on them with the breath of the Holy Spirit. And he sends them out into the world just as the Father has sent him. What we're reading in these verses is John's account of the Great Commission, also, recu- also recorded in Luke and Matthew. And having received a full revelation of who Jesus is, they're now commissioned to continue his mission into the world. This had also been part of Jesus' prayer for the disciples in chapter 17. Verse 18 says, As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus, he stands before them now, but he's soon to ascend to the Father. And before he goes, he equips them with the Holy Spirit and gives them the gospel of peace to take with them, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 22 says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It sounds a bit like Pentecost, doesn't it? Pentecost was the moment when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. But this happened after Jesus ascends. This moment here isn't John's account of that event. It's more like an enacted prophecy pointing forward to that later event. 
But what is important is that the disciples know, that we know, that our mission is fueled by the Holy Spirit. And the nature and the message of our mission is the gospel of peace. Verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I don't know about you, but this verse can sound confusing. We don't actually have the power to forgive sins, right? Only God can do that. Now, this is to focus us on the heart of the gospel. This is their task in a hostile world to invite people into a right relationship with God. This is the, the mission and the message of the founders of the early church and it is the same for us believers today. We've been given the responsibility to make the gospel clear so that people, people can make a right decision in regard to their sin before God. We mustn't ever overestimate our role in this mission. Salvation is God's work. But we can't underestimate it either. We've been commissioned Some will reject him and others will receive him and they will be called children of God. Remember the prologue? When we were introduced to all those big themes in John's gospel, that's what we hear here. You can almost preach the prologue backwards from these verses. Beautiful. Moving on to John 20, 24 to 25. Well, after their incredible encounter with the risen Jesus, they rushed to tell Thomas all about it. And this conversation bridges us between these two scenes, these two appearances, and it's the place where Thomas gets the reputation for being a doubting Thomas. But to me, the voice of Thomas is the voice of a realist, a very natural and human response. Because in fairness to him, he's still disorientated and uncertain in his grief. He's still living in the aftermath of the crucifixion. So maybe it's a bit unfair to think of him as that doubting Thomas. Here he is again, always doubting, because he had actually been a loyal and devoted follower of Jesus. In John chapter 11, when Jesus announced that he was returning to Bethany to wake Lazarus up, to bring life to his friend who died, he was telling them he was heading back down south near Jerusalem, moving toward those who were plotting to kill Jesus. And it was a risky and we know to be a deadly move. And Thomas, well, he was the one who said, let us all go that we might die with him. He was courageous and committed. In John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus famously answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Perhaps having seen Jesus arrested, having watched him be dragged off to be brutally tortured, knowing with certainty that he had died, reality had diminished his hope. How can Jesus be dead and still be the way and the truth and the life? It's no wonder that faced with that reality, 
even with the excited claim of his disciples, his fellow disciples. We've seen the Lord, they said, that he still wanted proof for himself. Why wasn't Thomas with the others in the upper room on that Sunday night? We don't really know. But his disappointment and his despair had led him to doubt. In verse 25 he says, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He wants to experience what the others have experienced. He wants to see what they've seen and he wants to believe what they believe. And it's almost like Jesus heard him. In verses 26 to 29, a week later, there's an action replay of the, of the appearance the week before. Same house, same disciples, same locked door, same greeting of peace. But this time Thomas is there. Jesus appears in the upper room where the disciples are gathered. But this time he's returning for the one, knowing Thomas's need for proof. He greets him with peace. He's not cross. It's tender and it's personal. Meeting Thomas where he's at, he invites him in verse 27, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, Thomas, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. In other words, it's like he's saying... Thomas, there's no need to have lost your hope. You thought I was the way and the truth and the life. I am. Death was not the end, Thomas. I died to wash you clean. Remember when I washed your feet? I've risen to bring hope for eternal life. Remember when I said, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Thomas, believe. Well, earlier I played you an interview with Brian Cox. The other guy interviewing him is a guy named Russell Brand. Russell Brand is a famous comedian, actor, writer, presenter in the UK. In his early career, he was known for a very crass brand of shock comedy. And he famously battled with heroin and sex addiction. He describes those dark days that led to his addiction as days gripped by fear, of being gripped with a feeling of irrelevance, of feeling desperation and hopelessness. Maybe he could recognise the despair and the disappointment that led Thomas to doubt. He famously said... Drugs and alcohol are not my problem. Reality is my problem. Drugs and alcohol were my solution. He describes a spiritual hole, a need for deep connection, a need for love, which he filled with all the wrong things. Every man who walks into a brothel, he says, is a man searching for God. His recovery has led him down a path of spirituality, a quest to find peace. He's now known for speaking about recovery, spirituality and culture. I think continually about what Christ meant by the afterlife, he says. Now, I can't speak for where he's at in his personal relationship with Jesus. 
but I think he has learned some interesting insights into society. With his own past struggles in view, he looks out into a world and he understands its brokenness. Humanity, he says, has never been in more desperate need for the message of Jesus. People are trying to feel good. They're trying to feel connected. They're trying to find the way. We're wired for eternal relationship. We are created to know our creator. It's time, he says, to bring the divine and the sacred back into the conversation. If you've ever wondered why you can have a whole heap of stuff and still feel empty, that's what he's talking about. If you've ever wondered why you feel like you've reached the top of the mountain only to feel completely unsatisfied, that's what he's talking about. If you've searched in all the wrong places and fed the hole with the wrong stuff, that's what he's talking about. You've been searching for the way and the truth and the life. And the way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. And Jesus stands before Thomas having passed through death, still bearing its scars, fully alive. God himself, its power, its victory, and its peace. Thomas can see it with his own eyes, and he believes. The king of that vast cosmos is standing in front of him as his personal saviour. And perhaps with his own mind just a little bit blown he confesses, my Lord and my God, and doubt has turned to faith. But now, in verse 29, Jesus knows he's returning to the Father, and soon they will no longer see Jesus. John's readers won't see the risen Jesus, and we've not seen the risen Jesus. But through the words of John and the testimony of those first eyewitnesses, we are invited to believe. Remember we heard that a few weeks ago in John 17. After he prays for his disciples, it says in verse 20, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. This is God's word to us. This is God's invitation to humanity. This is his answer to the broken world in desperate need of peace of happiness, of eternal hope. A loving God looking down on a very lost people in darkness and fear, living in self-fulfillment. He sent to us the king of the cosmos that we might also recognise him as our Lord, as our God. Six young people on winter camp have just come to make that claim for themselves. It's more glorious than the vast universe, but it is as real and as personal as the risen Jesus.